Well, good morning. The joy it is to be here with you. I'm glad you guys showed up. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. We are going to really get to work today. Join me in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to take a big swing and try and make it all the way from verse 23 of chapter 3 and get all the way to verse 7 of chapter 4. Seems like a lot. Several of these verses are really short. I think we can do this. If I start chasing rabbits, one of you give me the sign and make sure, because we're going to have to stay on task here. But this is really an incredible passage. You looked in your bulletin outline. This is about being children of God, being adopted into God's family. And those of you who know me well, we're not going to hear a lot of stories about my family because that'll just make me really weepy, and then we won't make it through this time. But, but here we are, the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Paul's writing this letter to these people that he loves, to these churches that he's planted because he wants to help them fully understand grace, and we get to be in on it. He wants them to know the true gospel message. And in today's passage, it's going to center around this question. It's a big question. Do we understand God? And let's be honest, we struggle in this area. And folks back then struggled in the application of this. And we said at the beginning of this series, what we're going to do is study this together and ask some questions so that as we're moving through the letter, we're not just gaining head knowledge, we're actually learning to apply this. I asked the question last week, what season of life are we in? Do we live our lives in such a way that the people around us can see that we understand God's grace? Well, today the question is this one. Do we understand the idea of God as our Father? Because Paul's explaining to the Galatians and to us, the true gospel is not about what we do. It's about what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's his desire that we be his children. And so it doesn't matter how good we are or how good we try to be. It matters that Jesus is perfect. And if we simply put our faith in him, then solely because of God's grace, we can quit trying to earn the status of being children of God. So that's the focus for today. Do we have a correct understanding of God? And that's, that question's as important as you think it is. Because <laughs> if we have a wrong understanding of God, it'll lead to misunderstanding all the way through in our relationship. Now, the church in Galatia had this idea. Maybe some of us have it as well. They would view God like he's their employer. Like he was the boss. And because of that, that led them to have this real works-based mentality. I mean, think of this practically. If you want to please your boss, what do you do? You work hard, right? And that's the way some of these folks thought. They saw God, he was kind of like distant. He was an overseer. And they had this big job description they had they were going to try and accomplish so that God would like them. Now, their job description was tough. It was basically the 613 laws of Moses that are found in the Torah. You imagine going to your new employee orientation, that's what they hand you, 613 rules to keep. Good luck. <laughs> hope you enjoy your first day. I hope you make it past your first hour on the job. If you can just keep all these rules, then the boss will like you. But if you don't, then he won't like you. He'll probably be mean to you. Now, here's the deal. The message of Galatians is exactly the opposite of that. Paul's trying to show God's not like a boss. He's like a father. And now for some of us, let's be honest, we may not like that analogy very much. Maybe we didn't have a close relationship with our father, or, or maybe he was abusive or controlling or something like that. And if that's the case, I am truly, truly sorry. I am. But also, if that's the case, this is going to be one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture for you. Because we're going to see here in the text, God's not a bad father, or an absent father, or an abusive father. He's a loving father that desires intimacy with his children. And for sure, he's not 
evaluating our performance on how we're doing keeping a list of 613 laws. He's wanting to call us to a loving relationship. J.I. Packer says it this way. Someone asked him, what is a Christian? He said, that question can be answered in a lot of ways. He said, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. I bet you've seen those name tags before. They have the pre-printed part, hello, my name is. Well, if you're a Christ follower, when you received grace, you began your relationship with God, your name tag changed. Because before Christ, it used to say hard things, tough things. Hello, my name is Slave. Not a very attractive name, is it? My name is Cursed. My name is Separated from God. My name is Dead in My Transgressions. Hi, Dead in My Transgressions. Nice to meet you. Those are tough names. But then Jesus. Then you had your Jesus moment. And because of God's grace, what Christ did on your behalf, on my behalf, we get new name tags. Now your name tag reads different. It says, hello, my name is son. Hi, my name is daughter. My name is child of God. That's our new name. After the Jesus event in our lives, God doesn't look at us anymore and see cursed, dead, separated. He sees son. That's our name. Now, it doesn't mean we won't still wrestle with the sin issue in our life. We will. But it does mean from the moment of that Jesus event on, when God sees us, he sees us as children. Do we get that? That's a huge concept to grasp. God wants us to know that. He's not our boss. He's our dad. So the foundation of who we are as Christ followers is that reality, that we get to be children of God. So let's keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. Paul's going to not let us get far from it. Join me there in chapter 3, and we'll start at verses 23 to 26. Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We were being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. So he says it's like this, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. He says this over and over. He says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this Galatian study can get really deep because we see some of the real big theological heavyweights here. We've already looked at the doctrine of redemption. Christ redeemed us from our sin. We looked at justification, that notion that we have no righteousness on our own, but when we accept the glorious exchange, then we get to be viewed as having Jesus' righteousness. Now we're hitting a real theological biggie here, this doctrine of adoption. This is really the pinnacle of the gospel message. It's not just that the gospel saves us from sin, but it saves us to being sons and daughters. We get to call God Father. Then we'll talk about the inheritance that comes from having God as our Father. But at the end of our passage last week, Paul was talking about the actual purpose for the law. We've said this many times now. The law is not bad. It just can't save us. We can't ask it to do something it wasn't designed to do. So what's the purpose of the law? Just a little review here. There's several purposes, more than we can cover. But as an overview, we get it. We get this list of ten commandments that God gave Moses through the angels. We get a list of 613 laws from the Torah. We boil it down to just two commandments in the New Testament. Love God, love your neighbor. Why do we get those? What's the purpose? Well, it's to show that we're not God. See, the law reveals the nature and the character of God. 
When God gave us the Ten Commandments and it says don't lie, what it really means is don't lie because God doesn't lie. When it says don't covet, it's not because it's a good idea not to covet, although it is a good idea not to covet. It says don't covet because God doesn't covet. It's about God's nature and character. If we read the Ten Commandments and in our head we think, well, that doesn't sound so hard, we've missed it. We've totally missed what God's trying to do. Understanding that we can't keep those things should drive us, listen, not to despair, but to desperation. To the point where we'd call out to the one true God who can keep them. When we realize it's a setup job, we can't possibly keep the law 100% of the time, that should force us to realize how awesome God is. Because he can keep them 100% of the time. That recognition alone should lead us to understand we need a Savior. That's one of the purposes of the law. It points to God's nature and his character. And I introduced this one last week. We talked about the idea that the law restrains evil in us. It doesn't erase it. It just tames it. And here's the truth on this. I think you understand that. If God just stepped back and said, okay, have at it. You can do whatever you want. There's not going to be any law. What do you think would happen? Would we live in peaceful coexistence? Or would there just be complete anarchy and chaos and rebellion? God knows the answer to this. Look at Judges chapter 17, verse 6. We'll have these on the screen. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, so what happened? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. How do you think that turned out? Having the law is God's way of showing us how much trouble we're in. If he just left us to our own devices, we'd go nuts. That's one of the purposes of the law. God has established this so we don't just go bonkers. And having the law curbs lawlessness. It doesn't cure it, it just restrains it. I found this great Martin Luther quote this week. He said, as a wild beast is tied to keep it from running amok, Luther says, so the law bridles mad and furious man to keep him from running wild. So restraining evil is a purpose of the law. And so Paul continues in our text today addressing this purpose of the law, and he uses two different figures of speech. First, he says the law is like prison. There's a tough analogy. <laughs> he says it acts like jail where it keeps us in custody. It keeps us away from the faith that's going to be revealed. And then he says this one. It's a little tricky. He says in verse 24, the law is like a tutor. Now, when we hear that word, we probably get a picture in our head. Hey, that's somebody who's real wise. We think of it probably particularly in a special area particular subject area, and they tutor you in that. My wife is a math nerd, math genius, pardon me. She's tutored lots of people in math. It's this really neat ability that God's given her. But that picture in your head, my wife teaching somebody math, is not exactly right. The Greek word that Paul uses there in verse 24 and 25, it's an unusual word. It's pedagogos. Tutor is probably just the closest English word that we have. There's translations that use the word guardian here. Again, I think it's close, but let me add this. What if my wife was tutoring you in math and she had a whip in her hand and you did the problem wrong and she went, bam, <laughs> and smacked you? That's closer to what this is. This person, the pedagogos back in Paul's day, they were typically a slave that was put in charge over a son when the child was like six or seven years old. And, and he would remain their guardian until that child reached puberty. And they were supposed to offer training. That was part of the deal. But they were supposed to do it as a strict disciplinarian. 
Paul's saying that's what the law does. <laughs> it serves like this strict disciplinarian for us, but only for a time. It says in the text, until Jesus came, then we could be set free of the law of sin and death. By what? Faith. And as weird as it is to say, this passage reads, the law is supposed to lead us to Christ. But it's probably more accurate to say it's supposed to be our disciplinarian, keeping us in prison until Jesus comes. There's supposed to be this really marked contrast that we're supposed to be picking up. All these verses are just ripe with time words. Did you see them? Now, before, later, until, while, no longer. They culminate in chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul writes, but when the fullness of time came. Paul's saying there's a contrast between how life was supposed to be lived before Jesus showed up, before our Jesus event, and then how we're supposed to live after Jesus Christ. And the reason is because Christ on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, that changed everything. We get that, right? For sure it changed the way we're supposed to relate to God and to one another and to the law. If you want a human example on this, I'll help you. If you're old like me, you can probably remember a time when you used to be able to take somebody to the airport. You remember this? And you could walk like right up to the gate with them and say goodbye, hug them. And, you know, and like if you're going to pick somebody up, you didn't have to wait at baggage claim. You could go to the gate and see them come off the plane. You might remember that. Can you do that anymore? No. Why not? Because something changed. An event happened. The tragedy, the 9-11 tragedy. But that event changed airport security. Now, that example's working backwards from the way we see it in our text, but we get it. It used to be easier to take somebody to the airport. Now it's harder because things have changed. I remember the first time I flew after 9-11. It wasn't until January the following year, so it had been like four months, and I was flying to Colorado to do some Young Life training, and so I was real comfortable. I was wearing some sweatpants because that's how I roll on the plane, and, and I don't have a lot of fashion sense, but I think these were cool at the time. I had like those sweatpants that were like basketball breakaway sweatpants that had the buttons down the side. You just grab them and yank them off. Well, I didn't think anything of it, and I walked through, and I set off the metal detector with the buttons on my pants. And so they pulled me over to the side, and I was a little freaked out or whatever, but I thought I'm fine. And so they run the wand over me, and I still don't pass. And so the TSA guy looks at me, and he says, you're going to have to take off your pants. I was like, whoa, hold on now. I don't even like it when the doctor tells me that. What's going on? Well, the thing is, because of that 9-11 event, things changed. It got harder to go fly. This is what Paul's saying only in reverse. He says, before Jesus came, it was hard. You always had to try and keep the law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent Jesus to make things, what? Not easier, better. To make it possible for us to change name tags move from being slaves to being sons. This is exciting. Okay, let's look at this next section. It's chapter 3, verse 27. We're going to go all the way to verse 3 of chapter 4. This is where we really start to get into adoption and inheritance. Paul writes, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It says, and if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs. There's your inheritance language. Heirs according to a promise. Now, I say as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything. 
but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. Verse 3 says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Some of that's confusing, so let's walk through this. For sure, we see here one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture. There's one here that gets taken out of context a lot. So let's observe and ask the questions. In verse 27, Paul writes, Those who've been baptized into Christ... And his idea is, it's those who've publicly identified with Christ. They've publicly professed faith, and they want to be encouraged and held accountable. It says those people have been clothed with Christ. This is not a verse saying you have to be baptized to receive salvation. You can keep looking for verses like that in your Bible, but I could just tell you right now, they're not in there. And actually, I want you to keep looking. I've said before, don't just accept what I say. Make sure it's what the Bible says. But here and everywhere, Paul teaches over and over about faith. And he mentions this baptism one time. Know this, believer's baptism is a fruit of salvation. It's not a requirement for salvation. But then he goes to this idea of being clothed in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors. He uses it here in Galatians, but you'll see it in Ephesians and Romans and Colossians. He loves this picture of putting on Christ. What he's literally referring to is the practice that a boy would go through in Paul's day when he entered manhood, he'd put on what was called the toga virilis. He'd wear a toga as a sign that he'd grown up. Now again, you can see the reverse of this, just the polar opposite on college campuses all across the world. You go to a college toga party, you put one on, that's a sign you haven't grown up. No offense. (laughs) Here Paul is teaching somebody who has been baptized into Christ They've put on Christ like a toga. It means that person understands that their relationship with God has changed. They get that they have the new name tag, and they're no longer under a tutor. They're not under a guardian that restrains them. They have a father. God is their father, and we become sons and daughters. And then in verse 28, Paul unleashes what is really a radical idea, but it's not radical in the way that some people want to interpret it. Some people want to take this verse out of its context and say, well, Paul's teaching that there shouldn't be any role distinctions anymore after Jesus Christ came. But that's not it at all. That's, that's not what Paul's teaching. What Paul does is radical. He literally throws out the window all the things that we usually use to distinguish ourselves in society, race and rank and gender. He says those things don't distinguish us anymore when it comes to salvation. When Jesus shows up, because he eliminates all those distinctions at the cross. And, and I think we know this. Let me ask this question. You don't have to answer out loud. How are women saved? It's by faith. Well, how are rich women saved? It's by faith. How would a rich black woman be saved? It's by faith. The answer doesn't change anywhere in there. And maybe we're better. We get that. But the folks in Paul's day, this would have been scandalous. This would have been radical. He's standing up and saying men and women are equal in this specific sense. And any talk back then of equality across race and gender and rank, that would have been ludicrous. Part of why this message is so incredible, we'll see it as we keep going, is the idea of daughters receiving an inheritance of any kind. Slaves receiving an inheritance. This would have been really, really unusual when Paul was writing. But that's the kind of equality he's talking about. Equality in regards to salvation. It's by grace and through faith, not by gender or rank at all. They make no difference. But to Paul's audience at the time, they did make a huge difference. 
one of the first things we talked about in this book, what a huge deal it was that Gentiles could receive Christ without becoming Jewish. This is scandalous stuff from Paul. John Stott has a great quote about this verse and the intended equality in it. He writes, this is equal in need of salvation. It's equal in our inability to earn salvation or deserve it. It's equal in the fact that God offers salvation to us freely in Christ. Now what I've seen happen, people want to stretch this verse beyond where it was intended and make this verse say, well, God just wants everybody to be the same all across the board. He wants us all to be the same. I think that is so far from the truth that God intended here. God loves diversity. He didn't create us all the same. Diversity gives God the opportunity to show how awesome he is. The big question becomes, how do we apply it? Just because we're distinct, does that mean we have to be unequal? Because for some reason, that's where we've taken this in society. We've tried to make distinction mean inequality. In this passage, God is not trying to make everybody the same. And the text is so clear there. At the end of verse 28, what's he doing? He says he wants to make us all one. He doesn't want us to be the same. He wants us to be unified in our diversity. And if we'll step back and think about this, we get it. You're a man and you accept Christ. Don't you stay a man? If you're Asian and you begin a relationship with the God of the universe and your name tag changes, aren't you still Asian? We understand this. The, the distinctions don't stop. However we come to the Lord, whatever race, whatever gender, we remain distinct after we get the noon tame tag. What we need to see, what I think would be so incredible, is if you'd see Christ followers, a, a young, poor, white guy Christ follower, become friends with an older, wealthy, black lady Christ follower, and they could be friends because they're one in Christ. So when Paul teaches this in verse 28, he's not trying to eliminate the distinct nature of the people that he's created. He's saying that Jesus on the cross eliminated all the inequality, all the bias, all the affinity that allows us to separate so we can be one in him. That's the goal. And again, if we're honest, the application part is the hard part. Because you look around the world, and we don't do this well. Everywhere you look, we show a lot of affinity and not much diversity. But don't let the fact that this hard, is hard to do, cloud our thinking on what this verse means. It doesn't mean everybody's equal, so let's just do away with roles. That's not what it's teaching. I've heard people, I think they're well-meaning, say, well, it means we're supposed to be colorblind and just treat everybody the same. I don't think that's it. <laughs> I think it's the opposite of that. I think it's saying, let's be super color aware. Let's notice the differences in the way God created people. We're dealing here with how God created people. And then let's celebrate them. It's not that they don't matter anymore, the distinctions. We don't stop being who God made us to be. It's just that now those things don't have to be barriers to us being one in Jesus Christ. He goes on. He says if we're one, if we're clothed in Jesus, then in verse 29, he says we're Abraham's descendants. And we've already talked about being sons of God. Now he says we're Abraham's offspring. Well, that proves to me that that's just an important point for Paul's Jewish readers to understand. Because Paul's continuing to just kick this salvation door wide open. He's saying anyone who believes unto salvation, that person becomes a son of Abraham, just like a believing Jewish person would. 
He takes away that distinction. Then he says there in verse 29 and in verse 1 of chapter 4, Christ followers become heirs. This is that inheritance language. What he's saying is all the promises that God made to Abraham, ultimately they were made to Jesus. He says if we're one, if we're Christ followers by faith, then we get the inheritance. Like me, do you want to know, okay, what do we get? Look real quickly at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 up on the screen. Great verse. It tells us that God, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. Through him also he made the world. All things. Mmm, that sounds good. I'll have that. That's what we get. Because of our name change, by faith we leave being captive to the law, and instead we become adopted into God's family. And when we do, we get to share in whatever Christ inherits. And this verse says it's everything. You start to grasp how big adoption is? Being part of God's family, we become co-heirs with Jesus. It says we inherit all the promises that God made to his children. And understand, they're promises. They're not transactions. We don't have to do anything to earn them. Now, verses 1 and 2, they're a little confusing there. Because it says when the heir is a child, then he's no different from a slave. But actually, that fits really well with what we said earlier. Before the promise, before Christ accomplished this work set before him so that we could respond in faith, Paul's saying people were under the law. And under the law, they were like little kids young kids who were heirs to a great estate. One day in the future, they're going to be able to inherit it. It's promised to them. But practically, while they're little kids, it's not theirs yet. It's going to happen. Paul says while they're still kids, they're no better off than slaves. Why? Because of this idea we said. They had disciplinarians and tutors controlling them. Those guardians were really the ones in charge. So the children were being restrained from fully experiencing the blessing. Guardians could still discipline them and direct them. And so these kids wouldn't have liberty until when? The end of verse 2 says the date set by the father. If you're here and you're a young person and you're like a prince and I don't know it or something, and you're set to inherit this great windfall, that's fantastic. But while you're young, is it really yours? No, not yet. So Paul's saying, well, in reality, then you're no better off than a slave. Little kids running around like a slave is to a guardian. They haven't received the inheritance yet. That's what Paul's teaching. And in verse 3, he helps us with the application because verse 3 is our story. It says, before Christ came, we were under the law. We were heirs of a promise that God made to Abraham, but the inheritance wasn't actually ours yet. As weird as a picture it is, it says the law was our pedagogos. It was our disciplinarian. Coming up in verse 5, Paul's going to teach that we're redeemed from that guardianship. But here, first, he says we're in bondage to the elemental things of the world. What does that mean? That's a little tricky. I think it may be a combination of a couple things here. Elemental things might just mean like the basics, the ABCs of life. You live in this world and you have to learn to crawl and then walk and then run. Love that phrase, everything you ever need to get through life you learned in kindergarten, right? We, we have to understand the basics, because those concepts stick with us. I was actually tightening some nuts and bolts on our basketball goal the other day, and my eight-year-old boy, Trace, was out there with me, and so I was teaching him which way the ratchet goes. Well, how did I teach him? You probably know, you remember it. 
Righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, right? That sticks with you. That's how we remember. So Paul might be talking about that kind of stuff, but, but the things that he's talking about, they, they sound to me more than just a basic understanding. He's addressing some pretty deep stuff. He's talking about discipline and imprisonment. Those don't really sound like elemental things. When I think elemental, I think elementary school. That just makes sense to me. My boy Trace, he's in elementary school. Just got out this week, but, but all year I walked him to his class almost every day. I walked in there. I saw what they did. They had recess. They brought snacks. There was play day. There wasn't a whole lot of deep stuff going on in elementary school. I think Paul's alluding to something more here too, and it's this idea that there are elemental forces that play in the world all around. They're things that make us think we could maybe try to obey the law and work our way to salvation. We understand what this is. In addition to our sin nature, we have an enemy. We have this enemy, Satan, that wants to try and knock us off our game. What are some of the things he's called? The prince of the air, the prince of the world, these elemental titles. Paul could be talking about that kind of elemental force. Now here's the deal, thank God, Satan is a defeated enemy. But while we're on this planet, Paul's saying we're going to be subjected to the tricks and the schemes that Satan will try and use to trip us up. Now, that could just be me. I hope I'm not reading into that. But Satan as an elemental force makes sense to me. But now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Did I say that Satan gave us the law to trip us up? No. He came up with the idea of the law so that he could leverage it against us. That's not it. We went over this a couple weeks ago. God gave us the law, and it's perfect. It's just not designed to save us. It has a purpose, and we've already said Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. I sure can't see Jesus coming to fulfill something that Satan gave us. Paul's been teaching all along. The law is designed to make us recognize our need for Jesus. But as one of the elemental things in the world, we get this. Satan is at work trying to leverage the law in order to trip us up. That just sounds to me like something our enemy would do and keep us from pursuing Christ. Now, finally, we get to this. It's the most vivid picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. It's verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4. Here Paul hammers home this notion of adoption into the family of God. It starts in verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I say that about a lot of Scripture, but I love this. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, Our sonship to God is the apex of, of creation. It's the goal of redemption. He's saying this is it. Adoption is what God has been aiming for all along. It's his goal for us. J.I. Packer again puts it this way. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Now this may sound weird to you. Maybe you haven't heard this before, but are we aware in the Bible that nowhere does it say all people are children of God? Do we get that? Yes, God created everything. God created everybody. But the idea that every person is a child of God is not in the Bible. 
So simply being born does not make us a child of God. Well, then what does? Being born again. It's salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's what makes us sons and daughters of God. And that is God's goal for everyone. But we don't get there by natural sonship. We get there by adoptive sonship. And listen, to really grasp that, to fully understand that, then our picture of God has to include that he's a God that chooses us. When we profess faith in Jesus Christ, he adopts us, he picks us. That means a lot. I read a story one time years ago. It was so touching that I wished I'd written it. It was about a father who told his biologically born daughter every night at bedtime, said, if you could line up all the little girls in the world, every one of them, I'd still pick you to be my daughter. It's not just that God put you in my family, but I would pick you to be my daughter. I love that illustration because that's the weight of adoption. God, our Father, by His grace, chooses us. He picks us. And then when we don't try to earn that choice, we get to inherit everything that He has. This is big. This is weightier than being saved from destruction. Do we get that? There's a difference between just seeing God as our Savior and seeing Him as our Father. It's the difference between saying, well, I want to go to heaven so I won't go to hell, or saying, I want to go to heaven so I can be with Jesus because I love Him and I want to spend eternity with Him. He's like my dad. The key for us in understanding God as our Father is getting that He doesn't just want to save us, He doesn't just want us to be viewed as righteous. He wants to be with us. He wants to shower his love and his mercy on us. He wants to discipline us so that we grow up wise and we become equipped to live lives that bring him the glory that he's so worthy of. He's all in. He's the best dad ever. And again, if your picture of a dad, if your experience with your father is not all rosy and sweet, you were wounded by your dad, then I'm begging you, draw near to this passage. Draw near to this promise and let God show you what being a father truly means. Paul uses one of my favorite words here, Abba, in verse 6. really explains a lot about the Godhead there. This is a great reference to the Trinity. That word doesn't appear in the Bible, but we see the concept here. We see the three-in-one picture of God in this passage. We understand he's God the Father. He sends his Son. Jesus Christ, into the world. He says also here, he sends the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. And when the Spirit enters our hearts, he cries out. It's not us crying out. He cries out for us, Abba, Father. I don't know that I've ever really grasped that until this week while I was studying. And I've read this passage a bunch. Paul doesn't cry out. He doesn't say that we cries out. It's the Holy Spirit in our hearts that cries out. Why? Because he gets it. He understands the relationship. He gets God as Father. And so he yells out, Abba, Father. Maybe we've heard some about that term. Maybe we've heard that it's a sweet term. It's the word that Jesus used when he wanted to have personal and intimate contact with God as his Father. It's a relational term. I've heard it explained this way before. It's kind of like calling our earthly fathers some endearing name other than father. I mean, how many of you call your father father all the time? You probably don't. You call him 
dad or daddy or pops or something like that. I think understanding Abba that way covers about half of the meaning that God wants us to grasp. If we just think of it as a term of endearment, I think we're getting about half of it. I think we are supposed to remember the kind of relationship that Jesus has with God as his Father. It's loving. It's close. That's half of it. We're also supposed to remember who Jesus' Father is. He's the God of the universe. Once we're accepted by grace as, as sons, once the name on our name tag changes, do we get then God, the awesome, powerful God of the universe, is our Father too? And so, yeah, calling him Abba may sound sweet, but it's not just, oh, Daddy, you're so sweet when you pick me up and you cuddle me. I love that. It's, whoa, Daddy, you are so awesome. Remember in the Old Testament when Moses couldn't even look at you? He could only see the backside of your glory? Abba, you're so powerful when you make the earthquake and the mountains tremble and when you created everything? See, Abba is the sweet, loving Daddy, but it's also the, whoa, You are awesome, Daddy. So calling God Abba really should show that we get both the aspects. Both the incredible love for the God who redeems us and saves us, and then the incredible respect for the God who is so awesome that he can redeem us and save us. Now look back at verse 7 real quick, because we're going to close with this. Something fascinating happens here, and if we just read the passage in English, we'll miss it. Paul sums up the bottom line of this teaching. It says, when we move from the law to faith in Jesus Christ, our name tags change. We go from being dead in transgressions to children of God. It says, when we're adopted as children, then we get the inheritance. Because God didn't just come to save us. He came to adopt us. He wants us in the family, and I can guarantee that to you. And you may ask, well, how? How can I know that? How can you know that? Because in this passage... In verse 6, when Paul's been saying you, he means everybody. Everybody he's addressing. In Greek, he's using the second person plural pronoun. If Paul was from Texas, he'd say y'all. But there in verse 7, he switches to the second person singular pronoun, you. Because he means you. And he means me. He says you are no longer a slave, but a son. You are going to be a child of God. You are entitled to an inheritance. We don't get that, that we, we might miss God as our Father. And we need to get that. We can't earn being children of God. Because the initiative of grace is all His. He sent His Son while we were still sinners. Why? Not just to save us, but to allow us to change from being slaves to being sons. To allow us to inherit every promise and all that he has. we got to get that. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what understanding God as our Father is all about. Let me finish with this story. It takes on special meaning to me. I heard it years ago. And it is one of the reasons, honestly, that I still walk Trace to his class every day. Because he doesn't need me to. He knows how to get there. There was a father in Japan. He had a young son who was about Trace's age. And he'd walk him to school every day and then walk him to his class. One day there was a terrible earthquake. whole town was destroyed, just devastated. The father wasn't killed in the earthquake. And so as soon as the ground stopped moving, he took off running to the elementary school. He wanted to check on his boy. When he got there, 
the elementary school was just leveled. It's multiple stories, and it was just a huge pile of stone and debris. Father broke into tears. He was heartbroken. And then he broke into action. He wrestled, and he climbed, and he tore through this debris until he got to the spot where he knew that his children, child's classroom had been. And when he got there, he started to dig. <laughs> he just picked up the stones one by one and carried them and put them out. And he was going to dig and find his boy. He was going to rescue him. And while he's digging and moving the stones, he's calling his son's name out loud. After a few hours, the emergency personnel and the firefighters arrive on the scene. And they see this guy up there moving stones by himself. And they come out and tell him, hey, you've got to stop digging. What are you doing out there? They're, there could be aftershocks or another earthquake. You're, you're going to kill yourself. Get out of there. Man wouldn't stop digging. Told him he was going to dig and he was going to rescue his boy. The emergency workers were kind and they let him continue to work. They thought he'd wear himself out. But he dug and he dug and he dug all through the night. He got up the next morning, and they came to him, and they said, hey, you're going to have to stop. We're going to bring in these bulldozers, and we're going to clear the site. We have to start working on this. And he said, no, you can't do that. If you do that, when you, when you clear the debris, you're going to crush my son. I know that he's alive in there. I said, you can dig for one more hour. And that hour became two, and then three. And then he'd been digging for 24 consecutive hours calling out his son's name. Then he heard the most beautiful sound. His son's voice responded to his cry, and the boy said, I'm here, Daddy. Now the workers jumped in to help, and together they all dug down there, and they found the boy, and they found three other children that had survived with him. They were all in this little pocket amidst this destruction. The father grabbed his boy and he said, I love you. I would have dug for you forever if that's what it took. And the boy said, I know that you would, Daddy. And these other kids with me, they started to lose hope. But I told him, my father will never give up looking for me. I knew that you'd save me. See, we need to have that picture of God as our father, that he'll never stop trying to save us but then we got to understand even one more thing. Motivated as he was by his love, by the intimacy, by his relationship for his boy, what if the dad had finally got down there and went, oh good, I'm done, and walked away? What if he'd said, oh good, I rescued him, I did my job, now I'm done. I don't have anything else to do. There's not a chance. Because the intimacy, the love that motivated him to not stop digging is the intimacy that we recognize in relationship. And I guarantee you now, that boy who survived the earthquake, he understands the love that his dad has for him. He understands that he's always going to be his son. He understands he's going to inherit everything the father has. Because his dad proved it to him. That's what God wants us to understand in this passage. If we've professed faith in Christ, that's amazing. Do we really grasp who God the Father is? Do we really get that He chose you and He chose me? Do we understand the love of our Father God, what He has for us, the love that would motivate Him to send His Son to reconcile us, 
Not just to save us from sin. No, it's more than that. But so that we can inherit all the promises he's made. So we can grasp our adoption into his family. So we can change name tags. It doesn't say slave anymore. It's a child of God. Let me pray. Daddy, thank you so much. And thank you for meeting me this week in my study and showing me. You don't ever stop digging. And thank you for the promise that you made to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus that we get to be adopted into your family. God, I pray for myself, for these folks here today, that we grasp that, that we understand. God, if we're struggling with father wounds that we've had, we don't have good examples here on earth. Help us to remember you're so much bigger. When we call you Abba, it's not just that we run to you and you scoop us up and you hold us. It's that you're all-powerful and almighty and sovereign over all things. And you are, when we get grace, when we respond in faith, you are our Father. And we get to be your child. God, we love you so much. I pray that we own that and grasp that and wear it and, and wear that name tag that we didn't earn. It says we're your child. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.